This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode number 34, entitled, Off the Script Thoughts on Jesus' Humanity. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thanks so much for joining us today. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I am your host. I thought I wanted to give an off-the-script episode this week because I've had a lot of thoughts in thinking about the importance of Jesus, the importance of Jesus as a human being taught in Scripture, why that matters, why that's even relevant, its function and significance within the Scriptures and theology and in the relationship specifically between God and His creation. There are a lot of things that I think about as I read through the passages of Scripture and I try to meditate on them and draw out their significance. And so I just kind of wanted to give a kind of coffee table discussion, you know, the kind of things that I would talk about if I was just sitting down, sitting across from you, the listener, at a coffee table or at a coffee shop or something like that. I want to kind of start off by thinking about Genesis chapter 1. This is where human beings are introduced in the Bible, at least in the first book of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, we have the creation of the world, and the creation of the world shows up in seven days in a typical week. You have day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5, day 6. God, of course, ceases from his work on day 7. But on day 6, you have humanity that's created. You have Adam, the Hebrew word for humanity, gets created on day 6. And it's not like a typical calendar that you would hang up on your wall to where it's going from left to right, day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, and like six little blocks. The way that it works in Genesis 1 is that it is constantly moving up to where on day six, humanity is created on the top of the pyramid, and so humanity functions as the hierarchy, as the ruler, as the most important part of God's creation, and as that head of creation, they are supposed to be ruling over God's creation. So it's very interesting that the function and the purpose of human beings in the midst of their own creation is that they are created to rule over God's creation. Now, of course, people would say, well, God is the ultimate ruler of the world and the ruler of the universe. God is king. God as God, the creator God, is certainly the uncontested ruler and king of this world. But what's interesting is that you don't get one chapter into the Bible before we realize that God has decided to share his rule with human beings. And God could have shared his rule with other things. God could have shared his rule with the fish. God could have shared his rule with the mountains. God could have shared his rule with the angels. But no, God decided out of all of his creation, he was going to share his rule with humanity. And what's interesting is that throughout the New Testament, there is this constant theme of trying to decide how is Jesus king? How is Jesus becoming king? Jesus, in his most exalted title, is Jesus the Christ, the anointed king and the anointed king of God's kingdom. We describe Jesus and we call him as Jesus Christ. This is really just another way of saying King Jesus. I mean, he is the one that God ultimately wants to put in charge of his world. But of course, God has ultimately stated that he has created human beings with a purpose to govern and to rule 
and to organize God's world in a just and loving fashion. So I think about the significance of Jesus in the New Testament in light of the creation of other human beings. And you can also look through Israel's scriptures and you can see that God has wanted to invest his authority in a king. And when that king does well, when that king as an image bearer of God, and of course in Genesis 1.27, human beings, Adam, are created in God's image, meaning that they are to reflect as good image bearers God's just rule and love and God's grace into this world. Of course, God has invested this in human kings in Israel, and some of those kings do well, and some of those kings, in fact, many of these kings don't do this very well, but God ultimately did want to have a human being in charge of his world. And Jesus, of course, invites other human beings who are willing to set aside the corruption of this world and to have the vocation of God as God's image bearers redeemed within their vocation, within their purpose, so that they can, as God had originally intended, reflect God's rule and God's love and God's restoration to this world. Jesus, of course, invited people to do this with his message of the kingdom, with his gospel of the kingdom. I look in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, and I think of something that I think it's ignored by a lot of biblical Unitarians. A lot of biblical Unitarians become biblical Unitarians almost as a reaction. They see the almost extremely high Christology that is stated in many churches that Jesus is co-equal with God, or sometimes that Jesus is just flat out called Yahweh and confused with him. And they react from that. And sometimes their reaction is, is a little negative. It's, it's swinging the pendulum a little too far in the other direction. And uh, that's, that's understandable, but it's probably a little premature as a reaction. But in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, after his resurrection, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. And this is the same authority that was given to Adam. Everything that God created in the first five days, was given to Adam when Adam was created, okay? And here Jesus is saying, notice, not in this future day of the kingdom, but after Jesus had been raised from the dead, he gets exalted to this position to where he is, again, the human being that is in charge of God's world. And Jesus gets exalted to God's right hand and is sitting at God's right hand. It is the most exalted thing you could ever say of somebody is that they are exalted and that they are not just at God's right hand, but they are seated at God's right hand. They are enthroned at God's right hand. And if you are seated in heaven, that means that you're enthroned, and the person who is sitting on the throne is functioning as a ruler. Even 1 Corinthians 15 says in regard to Jesus that he must reign until he puts all things under his feet. And the placing of all things under his feet is something that is continuing to take place, but it's ultimately going to be fulfilled when the last thing put under Jesus' feet is death. And that happens when Jesus comes back and raises the dead in his parousia in his second coming. But without getting sidetracked onto that, Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And that means that Jesus functions as the second Adam. He functions as the human being that was invested with the purpose to rule over God's creation. And that means that Jesus is extremely special. It means that he is effectively the number two person 
in the entire universe. I mean, that, that's the most exalted thing you could say of Jesus while maintaining faithfulness to what the scriptures are actually saying. I mean, he is the most exalted thing up there next to God without actually saying that he is God. He is seated at God's right hand as the number two person of the universe, God's right-hand man in more ways than one. Of course, we see that Jesus as a human being and not only reflecting God's rule and God's love and God's justice and his reign to this world, Jesus as a human being, being a good image bearer of God, is one who shows us human beings, specifically within the Gospels, how to reflect God to this world. And I think of another passage which gets in a reactionary sense, ignored or downplayed by many biblical Unitarians. And I want to encourage them to not think this way, but to wrestle with a passage like John 1.18 and to take it for what it does say. Oftentimes, we see people interpret passages from the Bible in an irresponsible way, and we go to these passages and we say, well, it doesn't mean X, or it doesn't mean Y. But Instead of just saying it doesn't mean this, we have to give people something that is better. We have to give them something that the passage does mean. I'm not so concerned as to what Scripture doesn't say. I'm more concerned with what Scripture does, in fact, say. And so John 1.18 says that basically no one has ever seen God. And then you've got Jesus who has revealed the Father. He has explained the Father. And in the Greek text, we actually have this verb where we get the word exegesis. Jesus says exegeted the Father. He has revealed and explained the Father. We talk about exegesis as a reading and interpreting out of the text. And this is what Jesus does. He interprets out of God and reveals and explains God to other people. And again, in this passage, no one has seen God, but we are able to know God and know what God is like through Jesus, the human being, who reveals who explains and shows us what God is like. And Jesus does this, again, not because he is God. God is someone who is distinct from Jesus. But Jesus is the one as the true image bearer, as the true king, as the authentic human being who fulfills the purposes for human beings that God had originally created for Adam and, of course, that God created for all human beings in that they are to reflect God's goodness, his love, his grace, and his restorative stewardship over this world. Jesus does that effectively within the Gospels. And so Jesus can be called many exalted things because he is reflecting God fully to this world. And Jesus, because he is the king who is ruling on God's behalf as God's vice regent, God can hand over many of the functions that belong only to the Creator God, and he can hand them over to Jesus and to say, hey, I want you to help out in this. This is why Jesus can raise the dead and give life, even though God is the Creator and the giver of life. Not that Jesus is to be confused with God, but that Jesus, as the King, as the image bearer of God that is ruling and functioning on God's behalf as a faithful image bearer, Jesus can do and say all of these things that God alone formally would only do and say. So Jesus can give life. Jesus can raise the dead. Throughout the Old Testament, you get the sense in many passages that God is the one that is going to sit as judge. But we can see, even in John's Gospel, that judgment has been handed over 
to the Son. Of course, God forgives sins, but God can hand that authority over to Jesus so that Jesus can forgive sins. Of course, in the Old Testament, God had handed over that authority to the high priest. So the function of forgiving sins doesn't make someone God. It means that that person who is forgiving sins, if they are authoritatively commissioned and authorized to do so, then they are doing it as God's authorized representative. I want to talk a little bit about Jesus and the example that he sets as a human being who lives faithfully in this life, doing the will of God, being faithful, being loyal, and being obedient, and how the New Testament constantly sets Jesus up as an example for how other Christians are supposed to live in their life. Of course, we have four accounts of the life and teachings of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are Greco-Roman biographies that are meant to describe the life. That's what they are. They're biographies. We read them, and we look at the life of Jesus. And Greco-Roman biographies, they had an explicit function to teach the readers and to persuade the readers to follow in the example of the person that is being described. And so it's not just a passive description of Jesus. It is something that is meant to encourage and to promote an appropriate response and behavior that is following along with that person. And that person is the human being Jesus, the Messiah, the one who demonstrated the role and the function of God's king of the kingdom of God by suffering and dying for the world and dealing with sin and death at that time so that humanity can be restored and the world's creation can be restored and reconciled to God in that human beings can again be rightly placed in charge over God's creation. But getting back to the example of Jesus, I mean, there are just so many places. We have the Gospels. Paul is constantly pointing to Jesus as the one that is an example, and Jesus' faithfulness is something that we're supposed to follow. Paul says in Galatians 2 that the life that he lives is in light of the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved Paul and gave himself up for Paul. The book of Revelation is constantly pointing to Jesus as the example for Christians to follow. Jesus is the conqueror who conquered in all the wrong ways, and he is set out as the one, according to Revelation 14, that people are supposed to follow. All of the people that are following the Lamb are highlighted and praised in the book of Revelation. But I want to talk about Philippians 2. In Philippians 2, this is a great passage that talks about Jesus, again, as the example of the human being that we're supposed to follow. And it's not just any sort of human being. It's Jesus as the Christ. It's Jesus as the King. Now, if the president came over to your house, you would be like, oh my gosh, wow. I mean, who am I? But the president just came to my house, and it would just be, like, so powerful. I mean, regardless of whatever opinion you would have of the president, if someone of high nobility or if someone of a high rank came to your house, it would be something that you would tell many people. I mean, it's just, you think, well, I mean, who am I that the president would come to my house? I mean, you, you just look at someone and that they would lower themselves or they would be humble to the point where they would interact with you in your life. And I kind of see this a little bit in Philippians 2. I'm going to read verses 3 through 5 in Philippians 2, where it says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Okay, I'm told there that with humility of mind I am to regard, I am to think, I am to reckon one another as more important than myself. 
course, we're all created equal and in Christ. There's no male or female or pure Greek or slave or free, that all those hierarchies within society, ancient and modern, get relativized in Christ because everyone is one in Christ. But we're to regard other people as more important than ourselves. Why are we to do this? Well, it continues. Do not look out for your own personal interests, Philippians 2, 4, but also for the interests of others. And then in verse 5, it tells us why we're to do this. Have this attitude among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Notice there, we are to have this attitude. We are to think this way. That's kind of what the Greek text says. We are to think this way collectively as a body of Christ among ourselves. And this attitude, this way of thinking was also in King Jesus. Notice again, someone of high nobility, someone of a high rank, the king, the king of God's kingdom, King Jesus thought this way. With humility of mind, Jesus regarded one another as more important than himself. With humility of mind, Jesus looked out for the interest of others. And we are to think this way because Jesus thought this way. And of course, Philippians 2 goes on. It talks about how Jesus gave up his royal privileges and was obedient to God to the point of death, even death on a cross. I mean, his loyalty, his faithfulness, his desire to be the image-bearing person, to be the human being and the person that God had created him to be, to be in line and in step with God's plans and purposes for him. Jesus did that loyally, faithfully, and in obedience, even to the point of death. And we are told to think that way, but in a way that is tangible. It's something that we can grasp. It's something that we can follow, and it's something that we can obey by applying it to our lives. So the life of Jesus is not something that is so exalted and so distant that we look at that and we say, oh goodness, I can't ever follow that in my life. I can never be like Jesus. No, the New Testament says Jesus is a human being. Jesus was tempted and he moved through and moved past that temptation by being loyal and being obedient. And that is the example for us because Jesus is the human being that God had always wanted, which is a human being that is loyal, that is faithful, and is willing to reflect God's goodness, his love, his grace, and his just stewardship to this world. Folks, those are just some of the ramblings that I've been having in my mind about Jesus, his role as a human being, why that humanity of Jesus matters, not just for theology and Christology, but for Jesus' relevance within the universe and Jesus' relevance as an example for our lives as Christians whenever you're listening to this podcast, which at the time it's being recorded is in September of 2018. Hopefully this has been encouraging to you. And uh, I hope that you will forgive me for not having such a deep and theologically technical episode, but just I was able to get some thoughts off my chest regarding Jesus and things that I've been thinking about. And hopefully this has been an encouragement and a blessing to you in some way. If you enjoy the Biblical Unitarian Podcast and you'd like to donate to the work that it's doing, please, I encourage you to check out this episode's description for a PayPal link. Thanks so much for joining us today at the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. My name is Dustin Smith, and until next time, take care.